Good morning. We'll try one more time. Good morning. It is so good to see you all. Had a little extended time there to greet visitors and family and friends, and we're so glad you could be with us today. As is the custom, of course, when we have a baby dedication, we want to have a study in the book of Revelation. No, I, I joke, but as we're going through this book, you know that some of the studies can be incredibly challenging, but all of them are encouraging. And even a study in the book of Revelation, which talks about some dark things, can bring us to the light things, the things that really, truly encourage us in our faith. And this morning's study is no exception. We're going to be talking about the rebuilt temple, which isn't built at the moment, but will be rebuilt in the near future, let's say. And as we talk about that, remember that God is faithful. Amen? God is faithful. That's the most encouraging part of this message today. And though there will be some dark moments and some difficulties and some challenge and some persecution, we'll see. We need to remember that even in the time of persecution and difficulty, God is working all things together for good. He truly is. And sometimes we are challenged to believe that because we go through difficult times And we can't make sense of why God would allow them. We're going to see in real time today that there are are reasons for why God allows us as his children to go through difficult times. The purpose and the plan is bigger than just us. It's bigger than ourselves. It's so much bigger. There's a plan of salvation for those who are watching us. And we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews says, but we're also surrounded by a cloud of people watching us to see how we're going to respond to the difficulties and to the challenges of life. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning and our our guests, those who are joining us. We thank you for all of our children, and especially little Judah this morning. We ask that you would continue to encourage us here at Calvary Chapel. And Lord, we ask that as we are in your word, that you would take the time that we have given to you and, bless, and just bless us with a word, not just a word from your word, but a word to our hearts, a word of encouragement and of knowledge, something that would it just speak to our own lives and the things we're going through, the challenges and the difficulties that we face, that we might know in our hearts and in our lives that you are not only real, but loving and compassionate and merciful and desiring to encourage us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning we are in what is yet a parenthetical vision, and I say that because as we're going through the narrative here chronologically somewhat, from chapter 4 through now into chapter 11, we learn this, we learn that there are things going on in the background that we haven't discussed yet. And as the study last week showed us, we looked ahead in chapter 10 to when Jesus returns. Now we go back and look at the entire period of time we call the seven-year tribulation, and we look at it with a a large, wide-angle lens. Have you ever noticed, I'm not much of a photographer. I remember one time uh, we got a a digital camera, and I read the manual, because I love technical manuals, because I'm a nerd. And I read the whole manual, figured out how it worked, and then I get to the last page and I said, yeah, but I don't like taking pictures. But I learned about the wide angle and the panoramic shot. And sometimes in life, there's a panorama of things going on that we're not really aware of. We can hyper-focus in, which we've been doing, but now we're going to back up. 
and realize that throughout this time, God is working. We've seen heavenly visions, things that are going on in heaven, and the corresponding cataclysms and events on, on earth. And we've walked right up into the end of this time period and seen Jesus return in the vision in chapter 10. But now we back up in chapter 11 to a vision that takes place, as we've seen, in the narrative between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpets. And this will be fulfilled during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So this would be, we believe, after the rapture of the church, during the opening of the first four seals, or the first uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which we studied way back in chapter 6. So this is happening at the same time. It's a flashback, if you will. And this would be before the opening of the fifth and the sixth seals, which, of course, ultimately brought persecution upon Israel and a cataclysm, many cataclysms, actually, on the earth. So we're going back for a reason, because now we need to focus in on the temple. And we haven't really talked about that, the temple on earth, yet. And so as we go into this chapter, that's the main theme and purpose of chapters 1 through 13. This would be before the persecution, before the preservation of the elect, when God preserves his people Israel for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So, the fulfillment of this prophecy will precede the desecration of the rebuilt temple. And it's very important to understand that the scriptures talk about a desecration of the temple in the middle of that seven-year period. So in order for a temple to be desecrated, it must exist. And since it hasn't been rebuilt, we know, and I say this all the time, we know the Lord can come back for his church at any time. I don't pretend to know when that'll be. Over the years, I've become more open-minded. It could be whenever God wants it to be. But one thing I do know is that once this seven-year time period begins, it'll be three and a half years before the temple is desecrated. Wait a minute. Then that means before that moment, this temple must be rebuilt. So the temple will be rebuilt at some point between now and that moment. When? I don't know. Is it rebuilt? No. So we know we're not in the tribulation. That's the point I'm trying to make. As bad as things are, and as dark as the world is, we're not there yet. And I hope that's encouraging, but it's probably a little scary, too, to think that things are going to get that much worse. But let's look at verses 1 through 2. Remember that John is in a vision having a conversation with Jesus, who's called the mighty messenger in chapter 10. And we're told there, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told in Revelation 11, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Let's just stop a moment and see what we're being told here. Again, this is sort of a panoramic view. John's called to measure the temple, the altar, count the worshipers, get a sense for what's going on in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. Now, it's important to note that he was given this reed or this measuring stick from this mighty messenger who is Jesus in chapter 10, and then he measures the altar and the temple, measuring... In the scriptures, but even today, if you take a survey of a piece of property, it implies that you own that property. I've never paid for a survey of someone else's property. Generally, you get a survey of your own property so that you can establish your 
parcel, your land, especially if you're going to build on it, you need that. And surveys are done, or at least updated, when you purchase a piece of property. So measuring implies ownership, but it also implies protection and preservation by God. I'm not going to turn there today, but in Zechariah chapter 2 and in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, we're talking about a different temple. We're talking about the millennial temple. There's a measuring of that temple as well. And it's God saying, this belongs to me, this is my temple, and he measures it, showing us, or at least has John, excuse me, John measure it, so that it can be established that this is his temple. All right, well, we now read in this scripture that the rebuilt temple with an altar will be there in the holy city of Jerusalem during the tribulation period. Now, Daniel... Jesus and Paul all confirm this. Pretty good authority. The second Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in and around 70 AD. The city was destroyed decades later, but the actual temple was destroyed by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD. John would have actually remembered the destruction of what was called Herod's temple. It was the second temple. He would have remembered that 25 years before he wrote this book. It had happened in the past, because here we are around 95 AD, and in 70 AD, 25 years earlier, he remembers the temple that he grew up with being destroyed. And now he's measuring, in a vision, another temple. The temple that John is measuring would be a third Jewish temple. There also will be a fourth Jewish temple during the millennium, but we're not talking about that this morning. There will be, as we see here, Jews worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem during the first three and a half years of tribulation. That's the scene. That's what we're told. One of the other things we're told here, John is told by this messenger who is Jesus, to exclude the outer court from the temple and from his measurements. Not to measure it, which implies that that's not really under the control of the Jews during that time. Now, the outer court will have been given to the Gentiles. If you're familiar with the second temple, Herod's temple, there was a similar situation. The outer court was originally created by Herod to provide a gathering place for the Gentiles in Jerusalem. But they couldn't go past the outer court. There were signs that threatened their death if they actually went into the inner court. And then, of course, women could only go so far and non-Levites could only go so far, and priests could only go so far, and the high priest, of course, only once during the year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could enter the Holy of Holies. So there was a lot of restriction there, but the Temple Mount at the moment, right now, is occupied by the Mosque of Omar and the Dome of the Rock. There are some arguments that The Temple Mount isn't exactly where some people think it is. I'm not going to get into that today. It doesn't concern me. I am neither an archaeologist nor a Jew who desires to rebuild the temple. But I do know if God says the temple will be rebuilt, it will be rebuilt. Maybe not in our lifetime, but it will be rebuilt. Now, the Gentiles will control the outer court during that first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Remember, it's seven years divided into two halves. You'll see that a lot as we study in this book. But we're also told, sort of as an addendum, we're not really talking about that at this moment, but we are told that the Gentiles will trample on the city of Jerusalem for 42 months. 
Now, of course, 42 months is the same as three and a half years, or 1,260 days, which is also used in the book of Revelation. That seven-year period divided in half comes up over and over and over again, as we'll see. So, the Gentiles will occupy and control the holy city for the second three and a half years of the tribulation, which makes sense. So the Jews will have control through the treaty that they'll actually sign with Antichrist. They will have control of the Temple Mount and the temple that, they will, be re- that will be rebuilt. And then it'll be desecrated. Daniel and Jesus refer to this as the abomination that causes desolation. Then the, the following 42 months or three and a half years the city will be under the control of the Gentiles. This is what Jesus referred to when he said, flee to the mountains, those of you who are in Judea, and you'll flee the city. Don't come off the roof. Don't go back in your house. That's what we've talked about going back to chapter 6. But let's move on. He predicts, that is, Jesus predicts, that this will continue until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What What is the times of the Gentiles? Well, it's very simple, actually. The times of the Gentiles began when Judah fell to the Babylonians, which took place over 605 to 586 B.C. This was the Babylonian captivity. It happened in three phases. But during that time, the time of the Gentiles began because they were now in control of Judea and Jerusalem. And the times of the Gentiles will end when Christ returns to rule and reign on the earth. So we are living in the times of the Gentiles as it relates to Israel, even though Israel and the children of Israel, the Jews, are back in the land, even though they have some limited control over the Temple Mount. It's kind of shared control, actually, more international control. But even so, this is the time of the Gentiles. But during the last three and a half years of this time period, called the Tribulation, the city will be overrun. The temple will be desecrated, and we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 13. Now, John was also told what will happen during those first three and a half years. And this is very interesting. It's a scene, I mean, my goodness, it's very dramatic, but it it answers a lot of questions, because one of the questions I have is, how is this temple going to be rebuilt? How is that going to happen? And we don't have all the details, but we know that there are two individuals who are involved in the rebuilding of the temple, just like there were two individuals involved with the rebuilding of the second Jewish temple. The prophets Zechariah and Haggai encouraged men named Joshua and Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity and after the destruction of Solomon's temple, which again took place in and around 586 B.C. So I'm giving you all the history so you know that what we're talking about has precedent, And besides, I really do want you to understand enough history to understand this book. But having said that, now let's look at what's going to take place in the future. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. We read in verses 3 through 6, this is Jesus speaking as the mighty messenger, I and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for... 1,260 days, or three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths, or they can call fire down from heaven, 
And not like Godzilla, okay? I, I, when I first read this the first time, I'm thinking Godzilla. No, no. Fire comes from their mouths. That is, they declare it and fire comes down from heaven. Think lightning. That's a better way of looking at it there. That, that kind of looks rather strange to us if we don't understand that. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. And these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So what we have here pretty clearly is God working miraculously and powerfully through two men during this three and a half period, a year period. And it explains how the temple can be rebuilt. If you have two witnesses like this, no one's going to be able to stand in the way of the temple being rebuilt. I believe, this is just my opinion, that when Daniel talks about the seven-year covenant, that's what allows the Jews to rebuild the temple, among other things. Of course, we know that the Antichrist will break that covenant halfway through the seven years, which makes sense, looking at the timeline. This is why I'm giving you all of this information. So it makes sense to you. So, looking at it again, let's understand, these two individuals will probably be the ones behind the rebuilding of the temple. When will that happen? It could happen shortly before the seven years. It could happen during the first three and a half years. But the temple will be completed by that middle point of that seven-year period. It has to be because the scripture says so. Now, this idea of two witnesses, two men who have power to prophesy for three and a half years, they are Jewish prophets. And they will speak to Israel during the first three and a half years of tribulation. Two, by the way, in the scripture, because numbers have have, uh, symbolic meaning. Two is the number of testimony. Interesting, because they're going to give their testimony, and they're going to testify and witness to who God is. So they're the two testifiers, two witnesses. Two is the number of testimony. In fact, you remember when the Israelites came to Kadesh Barnea and they sent in the spies. There were two that brought a good report. Um, when they sent the spies in. And then there were two that went into Jericho uh, and brought back information. There are also two tablets of the law that Moses received, the number of testimony. These prophets will be clothed in sackcloth, which are the garments of humility and repentance, which shows us that they are going to lead the nation of Israel in repentance and help rebuild their temple. Now, here's why I'm so strong on the issue of them help, helping or actually supervising the rebuilding of the temple. First of all, in the Old Testament, when the second temple was rebuilt, there were two prophets that encouraged that to be done. And, of course, Haggai and Zechariah, who I've already mentioned. But also, in the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 4, this is where the symbol of the two lampstands and the two olive trees come from. You can check this out on your own. You can even, if you need some help, go online and listen to the study that I did on this from Zechariah 4, or the whole book for that matter. Zechariah tells us that there were two olive trees, again, the number of testimony, and two lampstands before the Lord of the the earth. And that same language is now employed in Revelation chapter 11. That tells us that these two witnesses will be empowered like They're not Joshua and Zerubbabel, but they'll be empowered like Joshua and Zerubbabel. And what did they do? They rebuilt the Jewish temple, the second temple. So I think that kind of points us in the direction of understanding that these two prophets are going to help rebuild the third 
Jewish temple. Now, olives, olives we see all the time in the scripture. Olive trees provide oil, which is a type of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's power. And in fact, lampstands in the scripture provide light, which is also a type of the Holy Spirit. So all of the symbolism tells us that there are two prophets, Jewish prophets, empowered by God with supernatural power, the way the prophets were, and they're empowered with the purpose to rebuild the temple, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I don't think it's too difficult to reach that conclusion, but that's where we find ourselves. Okay. They will destroy their enemies if their enemies try to harm them during this time period, which again explains why the temple can easily be rebuilt. They will be able to call down fire from heaven to devour their enemies. Now, Elijah and Moses both destroyed the enemies of Israel in the same way. Elijah in 2 Kings 1 and Moses in Numbers 16. Just pointing that out. They will also stop the rain and turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with all kinds of plagues. I believe they will be the prophets that announce the first four seal judgments or four horsemen of the apocalypse. We saw these things take place from a heavenly perspective. From an earthly perspective, these prophets will announce those plagues and they will come upon the earth. And so it makes sense. Uh, We also see in the scriptures, going back to, well, even in the New Testament in James chapter 5, but also we see it in the Old Testament, that Elijah, the prophet Elijah, prayed that it would not rain in Israel and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Sound familiar? See, these are reoccurring themes because prophecy is thematic. That is, it has a theme, and the theme is repeated over and over again, ultimately, like parallelism, ultimately until it's completely fulfilled. There are many examples of this, which I've mentioned many times. Moses also turned the waters into blood and struck Egypt with all kinds of plagues, which I'm sure you know. If you've seen any movie on the life of Moses and the Israelites, specifically the Ten Commandments. So, interesting, right? Interesting. There's a lot of parallels here to things that have happened in the past, but they'll happen again in the future, thematically. Now, these two men, though, are only going to prophesy for three and a half years, because at the end of their prophecy, they give their lives. And you might be thinking like me, you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. They were able to destroy their enemies. Why all of a sudden are they killed? See, that's the part that's hard for you and I to understand. God allows us to be almost just just invulnerable, impervious, until we're not. And martyrs through the centuries have been put to death when God has allowed them to be put to death. And you think, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound like a loving God. Think about Jesus for just a second. Actually, think about Jesus every second. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Think about him. He was invulnerable. He was impervious. He couldn't be put to death until the moment he was. God loved his son. God the Father loved God the Son. He loved us too. There was a purpose in sending his son to die for us. And when the purpose was fulfilled, it brought life to all creation and all mankind who will respond and receive that newness of life through the death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. 
But if God had said, well, he's my son, I'm not going to let anyone harm him, well, we would be in trouble, wouldn't we? So there is always a purpose in suffering. There is always a purpose in God allowing suffering. And I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that you and I bring on ourselves. I'm talking about God's purpose and plan for suffering. And if you're going through a difficult time this morning, this message is for you. I'm not talking about the things we bring into our own lives, and God can use them too. In fact, when we sin and experience the consequences of sin, oftentimes that's the best thing that can happen. Because God works in our hearts through those things as well. But when God allows persecution, martyrdom, missionaries and pastors being persecuted, and we've seen much of this in recent times, even in our nation and in our culture, we have a tendency to look at it and say, oh, no, I was supposed to be kept safe. I had a promise from God. You are all, I, I don't want to say this too loud. It might sound like I'm freaking out. You and I, we're all going to die. Not this moment, but eventually. It's up to us to trust God with our death as well as our lives. See, one day we may get sick, one day a bus may take us out, one day, you know, a meteorite might come from heaven. Whatever it is that's going to happen to you, God already knows. And until that moment, you are invulnerable. You are impervious. You are protected by God. But the moment that you are no longer supposed to be here, you won't be. And I have said goodbye to loved ones and friends and saints far more holy than I'll ever be. And God was just as faithful to them as he'll be to us. Amen? So let's not look at death as God failing to protect us. Let's look at death as a transition to eternal life. That'll help you to understand why sometimes God allows things that we would never allow to happen. So as we look at this, let's read now, picking up in uh, verse 7. Now when they, that is these two witnesses, have finished their testimony... They're witnessing the beast, and we'll talk more about this individual. The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Notice there, there's, there's a, a spiritually uh, demonic person, which we've talked a little bit about, but we'll get into in great detail in chapter 13, who comes out with the power of the devil, and he's able to destroy these men, but not because he's more powerful but because of God's purposes. So we read there that he comes up from the abyss, he will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified, so Jerusalem. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So they blame the prophets for all the seal judgments that took place in that first three and a half year time period. These two men will be overpowered and killed, but only after they finish their testimony. You and I, we will pass from this earth only when we have finished our testimony. So if you are older some of our older congregation who listen online, who can't make it out, might think, oh, God has finished using me. No. As long as you draw breath, there's a plan that God has for you. And you might be thinking, well, I'm old and infirm. They often think about this. I, I, I do a lot of training, and 
Many times uh, I'm encouraged in my training, but then I think, you know, I'm in my late 50s. I may not always be able to train the way I do at the moment. I I may not. And I thank God every day for the health that I have at the moment, but that's not guaranteed. I just enjoy today knowing that there, there may come a day where I don't have the strength that I have today, the fitness level that I have today. And and you know what? That's not in my hands. That's in God's hands. But a day will come when you and I are called home or perhaps there'll be a a long extended time period where we're not at our peak. You've got to trust God through those time periods as well. And I know that's difficult. And some of you are actually there right now. And I know that you get up in the morning, you remember back when you were 25, just like I do, and you think, why couldn't I have that strength? You know? Why, why is that strength and that vigor, you know, we say as older people, wasted on the young. You know, when we have all the wisdom to use it, we don't have the strength that we once had. But there's a better life. There's an eternal life that we're looking forward to. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So that's the encouraging part of this message, for you to know that, that God is in control. Well, these individuals... After they finished their 1,260-day testimony, as we, as we see there, as, as, as they're, they're done with that three-and-a-half-year period, once that happens, God will take them home, but not directly. There's going to be a moment where their bodies lay in the street, and they're killed by this beast, this beast that's really a man, but he's also a beast, uh, because he's inspired and empowered by an evil spirit, and Satan himself, uh, this, this spirit we talk about as coming up from the abyss when demons are released, God allows it to take place. We talked about that in chapter 9. But they will be, that is these two witnesses, invincible until after they finish their prophetic ministry. They will likely be killed within the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem as this individual called the beast tries to take over and desecrate that temple. They will be attacked, overpowered, and killed by this man. And this man will be a Gentile world ruler who's empowered by an evil spirit. By the way, when we talk about the abyss, the abyss is also called the bottomless pit. It's, it's where demons, you know, are imprisoned. In fact, uh, Jesus had the power to send demons into the abyss. We learn that in Luke's gospel. And this is a place of fiery torment for demons. It's a place that they don't want to be. They would much rather be here in this world. And as we see... In most of the world today, the leaders of our world are proving that demons still exist. Some of the things they cook up and some of the ideas they have and the lies that they speak and and the things they believe show me that there are demons and they're still possessing people today. Uh, If you you watch and you see some of the crimes that are committed in our world and within our culture and some of the horrendous things that are done to children and to women, you can't come to any other conclusion. But here's what we do know. The bodies of these men will lie in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days as the world watches and celebrates. Jerusalem at this point will have become as immoral as Sodom and as idolatrous as Egypt. But this is clearly the city of Jerusalem where their Lord, our Lord Jesus, was crucified. We're told that that's the case. Now, think about it with me. Today's technology... And 24-7 media coverage makes this possible. I mean, it's kind of crazy, the things that our culture gets fixated on. I mean, I understand being fixated on a war in Europe or problems in Taiwan, 
conflict in the world. I understand a war. I understand uh, problems maybe within the government. I understand us being fixated on that. I do. But what, what's, some of the things that our media gets fixated on, I, I guess it's a distraction from the things that really matter. I mean, I look at some of the stories that they spend so much time on, and I think to myself, who cares? I'm not talking about someone who died or some situation, but listen, I'm just going to say this, and I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody, but I'm going to say it anyway because that's my MO. I really don't care what the Kardashians are doing. (laughs) It it doesn't concern me at all. I don't want to waste any energy or time on that. But in our culture, one of them sneezes, and everybody talks about it. This is the kind of stuff we get fixated on in our media. And, of course, they're fixated on it for a reason. Our culture is obsessed with nonsense. There's plenty of nonsense to go around from people like that. The other thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hesitate, I don't want to say anything negative about these people, but Harry and Meghan? Really? Every time I read the newspaper, I'm reading about a book, or a, I'm thinking about, really? In today's day and age, with all of the things we're dealing with, that's what we need to be fixated on? And then I think, oh, let me me turn off the news. Let me go to Netflix. Oh, there they are. (laughs) It's like the world wants us to be distracted talking about nonsense things. But when something is important to the media narrative, ho, 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 you can't find anything else. And I suspect that when this happens, the 24-7 media coverage will be fixated. They'll have, you know, cams that you can log on to watching the bodies of these men lie there and the world celebrates. You know, the Jerusalem cam. This is the kind of stuff that happens. And I understand this is a significant event for them, but, but, it's not going to end there, is it? It's not. As the world gloats over them and celebrates their death, they give gifts to each other. I guess this is some sort of strange, evil Christmas. The world will begin, uh, will believe that the tribulation of the last three and a half years is finally over. Oh. That's not the case at all. It's just really beginning at this point. The world will blame these prophets for tormenting those who live on the earth. But really, they should blame themselves. Now, in verse 11, this is, this is the good part, okay? And this is true for every one of us. One day, we're going to die. But one day, we're going to be raised to life. Amen? Amen? See, that's the good news, that that death opens the door to eternal life, from which we will never experience the second death because we are in Christ. And this is what happens to these individuals. In verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Imagine that, all the 24-7 news coverage. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. There's that cloud again. While their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. And a tenth of the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, collapsed. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified. And look at this. And look at this. And gave glory to the God of heaven. You see, you have to look for that in suffering. There's always a purpose in suffering. Let's back up a minute. 
John saw God resurrect these two men after three and a half days and strike Jerusalem with a severe earthquake. The world was terrified as they watched God bring these men back to life. Now, this is a vision of the future, but he's seeing it and describing it in the past because he saw it. They were resurrected, given their glorified bodies, and God called them to heaven just like he will call the dead in Christ at the rapture of the church. So be encouraged. God will work through our lives and he will work through our deaths. You can know that. God called them and they ascended into heaven in a cloud before their enemies. And remember, we mentioned this last week, so I'm not going to go into it in the same detail, that bright clouds appear whenever the heavenly and the earthly realms intersect. Many, many times in the scriptures, and I went through them last week, so we're going to pass on it this morning, but even Jesus was taken up in a cloud and will return in a cloud. So we know that cloud describes not a rain cloud, but an experience, something that happens when heaven and earth intersect. And that's the case here. Now, there was a severe earthquake in Jerusalem that destroyed a tenth of the city. We're told 7,000 were killed in what is the first cataclysmic disaster to affect Israel during this time period. Israel's shielded until this point, but then at this point, it experiences the first of many trials and cataclysms. Israel will likely be unaffected by those first four seal judgments or horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, the seven-year covenant that they signed with the Gentile world ruler will still be in effect, but the survivors in Jerusalem who will be terrified will give glory to the God of heaven. So God used the death and the resurrection of these prophets to bring many to repentance. Amen? Isn't that why we're here, ultimately? I mean, if we're not going to do that work, if we're not going to bring men and women to repentance, why are we here exactly? To play the stock market? To watch the giants lose? Why are we here exactly? We're here to bring the gospel message to the world. And if your life can save many, your death can save many as well. See, that has to be our perspective, or we're not going to get it. This isn't our best life now. This is the life that God has gifted us and given us to share the gospel with the world that needs to hear it. Can I hear an amen? And this message is loud and clear in this seen in Revelation chapter 11. But I know what you're thinking, some of you at least. Who are these two witnesses? Well, I've heard all types of suggestions. One suggestion is that Enoch, who never really died from Genesis chapter 5, is one of these witnesses. Possible. I think it's more likely that Elijah is one of them. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, he was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind, And we know the scriptures tell us in Malachi and also in Matthew that he will return to Israel before the day of the Lord comes. Also, remember, he destroyed his enemies by calling down fire from heaven. And he was the one that prayed that it would not rain in Israel and it didn't rain for three and a half years. So I think it's probable or possible that this is Elijah the prophet. Also, Moses has been suggested for several reasons. Well, why? First of all, Moses was buried by God. What does that mean exactly? I think what it means is they never found the body. We know they looked for it. They never found it. He was buried by God. By the way, he was in fantastic health when he was buried by God. His body was never found, but we're told he was as strong as ever at 120. 
Even Satan contended with the archangel Michael over his physical body in Jude 9. He's also mentioned with Elijah in connection with the day of the Lord in Malachi 4. So the clues seem to point to Moses as well. By the way, he destroyed his enemies by calling down fire from heaven. And he was the one, as we all well know, that turned the waters into blood and struck Egypt with all kinds of plagues. So I believe this is Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets in the last days. If it's not them, it's someone very much like them. But it's just an interesting thought. By the way, just one little last tidbit of information before we close as I ask the worship team to come up. Moses and Elijah both appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, you know how Moses wasn't allowed to enter the Promised Land? Eh, there's a loophole. It's important to recognize that God has a plan. We don't know all the details. I've just suggested some things to you. Maybe they're true. The scripture's true. Some of my suggestions may not, but here's the, here's the truth. Even Moses and Elijah, God is not done with them. We're told that in the scriptures. And God is not finished with you either. There's a work he wants to do in you and through you that includes the rest of your life and even your death. But a day will come where you're brought into the presence of God. You know that we're not finished then either because we return with the Lord Jesus to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. Amen? And even then we're not finished because guess what? There's an eternity to experience with Jesus and all the redeemed. And we're not told a whole lot about it, but what we are told is pretty encouraging. So today, if you hear his voice, respond. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't made that commitment, some of this stuff may be new to a lot of you, but the truth that he came and died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that's not new, I'm sure you've heard that before. So what about you? Will you be used by God? Will you live your life and give your life to him? And will you allow even the end of your life to bring glory to the God of heaven, that others may repent and give glory to the God of heaven? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. We learned so much. But all of that is really not as important as the truth we've just shared, that we've just learned, that we've just been reminded of. That you, Jesus, came to die for us and rose again to give us newness of life. And that if we give our hearts to you, for as many as received them, to those that believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. If we do that, if we respond in that way, not only are we saved from our sins and made right in your sight, we're saved for your purposes to bring your message of hope and salvation to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Oh, what a future we have. What a joy we have. Let us not take that lightly. Let us be reminded of that even in our suffering, even in our sickness, even in our difficulty, in our old age. May we be reminded that you are sovereign in control and in control over all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.